You're listening to the College Info Geek Podcast, where it's all about learning more, paying off your student debt, landing your dream job, and being awesome at college. Now, here's your host, Thomas Frank. Hey, paisanos, it's the Super College Info Geek Super Show. And welcome back to the College Info Geek Podcast. This is episode 9, and today I can tell you I'm officially graduated from college and have nothing to do with my time, except for make podcasts, of course. Today I've got another cool interview for you to listen to, and you are going to want to listen to this if you are interested in building skill sets. So my guest today is my friend Caleb Wojcik who is a really skilled individual, um, has skill sets in multiple different areas, and that is the reason I wanted to have him on this podcast, because you know I wondered how he developed all these different skill sets that he has, whether it's blogging, podcasting, web design, photography, videography, all this cool stuff that he's doing, and uh, he's leveraged all these skills to build his own business, he's an entrepreneur, you know, works on his own time. So hopefully you'll be as interested in this interview as I was when I was conducting it. And as always, you can get the show notes for this episode at collegeinfogeek.com slash cast. Look for the listing for episode 9, click on it, and read the text. You'll find everything you want to find in there. Also, Caleb actually interviewed me for his podcast, and we thought it'd be fun to publish on the exact same day. So if you want to hear his interview with me over... uh, paying off debt in my story, you can head over to his blog, pocketchanged.com, and look for episode 17 on his podcast. He's a little bit further on than me, but yeah. Okay, so before we dive into this interview, I guess I should give a little bit of an introduction. So Caleb is, um, first and foremost, a employee number uno, or numero uno, or however you want to say it, at thinktraffic.net, which is uh, was started in rent by my hero and my friend Corbett Barr, who I learned a lot from in building my own blog. Um, Caleb helps him with the content marketing, with the design, all that kind of stuff. And he also helps Corbett out with their project Fizzle.co, which is kind of like a lynda.com sort of thing for online business. It's a video training website, but it also has a cool forum and um, lots of other cool things that help people who want to build online businesses succeed. He's also got his own blog, which is called pocketchanged.com, Pocket Changed, with a D on the end. And it goes over personal finance, personal development, entrepreneurship, all that cool stuff. Um, He's got his own personal website at calebwajic.com where he posts some of his work. He's a videographer and photographer. Caleb just does a lot of cool stuff. So like I said, you know, really diverse skill set. And that's what I'm interested in digging into today. So let's get into this interview with Caleb Wajic. So welcome to the show, Caleb. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Uh, so, good morning. It's pretty early out there, isn't it? Uh, it's like 9 o'clock. That's not too early for me. I'm usually up around 6 or 7 already. Even though you're pretty much working for yourself and living the dream. Cool. Yeah, I, I just got used to that habit when I worked at Boeing, and I was up at 5.30 or 6 to get in on time. So, it just kind of stuck with me. Oh, so you worked at Boeing before this? Yeah, I worked at Boeing straight out of college. Cool. Well, we might want to talk about that a little bit um, at some point during this interview. Honestly, I need to get into that habit of waking up early in the morning. I'm just about <laughs> done with school, and I just woke up at like 10 o'clock. <laughs> Maybe going out to the West Coast, I'll wake up two hours earlier, huh? Yeah, that was part of it, too, I think, is like I went from East Coast or Midwest to West Coast and never really changed my clock at all. So where were you in the Midwest? Uh, I went to Michigan State, and I grew up in Northern Michigan. Okay, cool. So you just kind of same as me, you went pretty close to home for college. 
Yeah, it was about three hours away, but I knew I wanted to go in-state. That's where my dad went, my sister went, and I had some scholarships there. And so, and I love Big Ten sports, so that's where I wanted to be. Cool. So was it one of those situations where you just, you know, that's the college you picked right away, or did you tour a bunch of schools and pick that one after a bunch of deliberation? I was super into video games growing up. Um, I had, like, every system, played a ton, and I really wanted to go into making video games. And I went, really wanted to go to uh, DigiPen, which is out in Redmond, Washington, mm. out by like where Nintendo and Microsoft are and stuff. But my mom pushed me to get a four-year degree instead. And so I kind of settled on Michigan State. I really didn't tour that many other places. I toured Michigan, um, a, few, a few other Midwest schools like Purdue and stuff like that. But I really just liked Michigan State because I'd been there lots of times with to see my sister and my dad to me to football games and basketball games and stuff. So it felt it felt like the right thing to do. Cool. You know, it's funny. I've actually talked to some people in the games industry, and a lot of them say, you know, most of the guys who are here doing level design, doing programming, none of them went for video game specific degrees. It's all mm-hmm. like comp sci guys and software engineering guys who went to four year universities. So yeah, and even now, like. With the job market, the games industry is like an up and down kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like it goes through ebbs and flows of hiring and firing and stuff. And so I'm kind of glad I didn't go that route. But right. at the same time, you know, I think learning something technical when you're in college is a better way to go than like a theoretical kind of thing. Because then you have a hard skill. Like if you major in computer science or something like that, then you have something not just to fall back on, but something like analytical that you can then show people I can build things as opposed to, you know, a major that is a little more theoretical. Exactly. Um, for me, at least in my mind, you should, I mean, you can do something softer in college as long as you are doing something on the side that's a mm-hmm. little harder. So I did, my major is kind of a mix of the soft business skills and the coding things, but I learned a lot of coding on the side. So it ended up being really helpful. I think somebody could honestly go into college and they could major in theater you know, build up really strong communication skills as long as, you know, at night they were learning a coding language or learning something that you can actually say you know quantitatively, you know, how much you know it. Yeah, and it doesn't even necessarily need to be, like, tech-related. I think everybody goes there because that's what's hot. But I think even, like, being able to write or being able to speak mm-hmm. and, like, like, the cornerstone basic things that you need to be able to do in a job, like, those are still important. So even, like... If you're an English major, like you said, theater or drama or something like that, those are skills that'll transfer over into whatever you do. Exactly. You're like you're taking the major of the skills that are most wanted and least found in graduates today. So mm. there's there's a case to be made for people going and majoring in English or theater or something like that or history. You know, just something where you're learning some softer skills. Mm-hmm. So cool. So I mean. I think it'd be great to talk about your college career, you know, how you got to where you are. But first, let's lay the groundwork, um, just kind of show people, you know, what's the end game? What are you doing today? I'm obviously going to talk about that a little bit in the intro, but can you talk about a little bit about what your day-to-day is and, you know, the layout of all your different activities? So day-to-day, what I do right now full-time is I work for uh, Corbett Barr, who's the founder of Think Traffic, and more recently, Fizzle.co, which is an online business training platform. And he's based in San Francisco, and our third person, Chase Reeves, is also in San Francisco, but I'm in San Diego. And I've been working with Corbett for over a year and a half, um, almost two years now. And with him, I do everything from 
writing to audio and video editing to support on our products. We teach people how to blog and earn money online in honest ways. And so that's what I do by day. I also have my own podcast. I run a site called pocketchange.com. And that's more of like a pet project where I showcase entrepreneurs and help people with personal finance and, you know, kind of that first year before and after becoming an entrepreneur. And then on the side, I also do a bunch of video production work. Um, and my wife does photography, so we're kind of a tag team, and we do things like weddings and corporate events and things like that where we cover those things. Cool. So you've got a lot of skills, basically. Yeah, and I mean, I, I dabble in, like, I do my own web design and things like that. Um, I had I had two majors in college, actually. One was supply chain management, which was in the business school, mm. and I chose that one because it was always ranked number one or number two in the country, and I knew I could get a job. And then my second major was telecommunications, which the subtitle was digital media and technology, which is really vague. But I took classes in, you know, web design, programming, audio, video, everything that used a computer, basically. So I learned how to but use it was like, like the Suite creative stuff. Mm-hmm. So you saying web design, you're doing. I really wish that my college had a major like that. Mm-hmm. That would have been exactly what I went into. But we don't have. My school has one web design class, and it starts from, like, basic HTML. I took it, and I ended up being tech support for the rest of the class. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was it was a good experience, but I really wish we would have had a major like that where you'd learn, like, all the Adobe suites some, like, really, really in-depth web design with PHP, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I mean, that, that, that part of the major was, was really self-guided for me. Like, I was in the lab watching Lynda.com tutorials, how to use Dreamweaver and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. this is back in, like, 2005 or so. But a lot of the other classes were like in TV studios, like in production or in a radio studio. So you could get the feel of how it was actually done in the real world. Like, you know, it was like the PBS channel in Lansing, Michigan was like the studios were there at school. And so it was cool to get into that and to be able to do that kind of thing. I also interned at a ABC affiliate in Lansing for the sports director. So I was going to Detroit sports teams like the Red Wings and Tigers and stuff and interviewing players and coaches and shooting the games. And I went to a lot of Michigan State sports. And so I I had a lot of hands-on example of what it was like to be media, too. And that's probably my biggest advice for anyone in college is to just try lots of things. I was in tons of different groups, Mm -hmm. partially because I wanted a well-rounded resume. But at the same time, I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And so you know, I, I built websites for people on the side. Went to work at the sports station. You know, I rode crew. I was in, uh, I was in like Circle K, which was like a volunteer group. And I just tried to do a lot of different things to try to figure out what I really wanted to do. Right. You know, did you did you do these things to figure out what you wanted to do solely, like for that purpose, or were you also trying to like fill your resume up? Because I know for me, like one of the big reasons I was doing so much stuff, at least the first two years, is like I felt like I needed to have as much stuff on my resume as possible. It, it was it was a combination of those two things. I mean, I studied abroad because I wanted to, mm. but at the same time, it looked good on a resume. Right. And so I think it really was a combination of the two. I wasn't just joining clubs and trying to become president so it looked good on the resume. Yeah, like I was still doing I, things that I wanted to do. Unfortunately, I made that mistake the first couple of years. I just was like, I need to be officer in clubs. So it's, I was in a couple <laughs> of clubs I basically never wanted to go to, but I went every single week. Mm-hmm. So where did you study abroad? Because that's the one thing I didn't do. I mean, I kind of 
made up my own little study abroad thing, but I never did that with the school. Well, I knew that I didn't want to do a whole semester away mm. uh, because I wanted to be in Michigan during like fall and spring and stuff. So I knew that my summers between sophomore and junior year and junior and senior year needed to be internships if I wanted to land a job after school. So I was like, okay, so right after freshman year, I need to go somewhere. And I, because I was in the honors college, I was able to convince them that I should be able to go on a trip with a bunch of juniors and seniors to Japan. And so I studied there for about a month. We studied business and marketing and I had to independent study in a course like by myself because I didn't have the prerequisites for the course everybody else was studying. Like I would still go to the class and listen and read the book and stuff, but the school wouldn't give me credit. So it was like that even though there's infrastructure and rules and stuff around college, if you talk to the right people, they can get you to do what you want to do. And I just really wanted to go to Japan and this was the only one that was happening that summer. So I just did whatever I could with any of my connections and advisors to make it happen and independent studied in like, it was like urban planning 490 or something. And I was like a freshman taking like <laughs> intro 101 classes. And so... Now, was it stuff you could understand when you took it? It was it was just like studying world expos and their effect on the countries that they were taking place in. And so I went to the world expo when it was in Japan and wrote a few papers about it. Oh, cool. And so it was that kind of thing. It was when I was in college, I pushed really hard to get into the classes that I wanted to get into. And, you know, if they didn't exist, then I would just kind of make my own. Mm-hmm. That is the way to do it, man. So that's that's so cool you went to Japan. That's where I went last year. And just recently uh, found out one of my friends has the ability to go again. So we're leaving at the end of May. That's awesome. <laughs> we're yeah, I, go back I for, there. I think, a month this time. How long were you there? I was there about a month. About a month? Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, it'll be so it was twice the twice the time as last time. So I'll have much more time to actually meander around and explore yeah. instead of just planning everything. It's in, definitely an expensive place to be. the The best tip I can give someone is get a Japan Rail Pass. Yeah, the JR Pass is wherever. great. We didn't do that before because we were like, oh, we're just going to be in Tokyo most of the time, and we're going to take the small subways, so we won't need it. And I didn't calculate how much my train expenses were, but they were probably astronomical. Mm-hmm. Did you? Uh, well, you were with the group, so you probably had like set up lodging. But uh, what I did was we found hostels, so it was like twenty two hundred yen a night, which at the time was thirty bucks. I think now the yen is like equivalent with the dollar again, so it's going to be like twenty bucks a night. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the really nice part. Yeah, for three of the weeks we were in like set up housing with like a university, but then the last week was in a hostel in Kyoto. And then on the weekends oh. and stuff, when we did day trips, we would stay in Ryukans, which are like, it's basically imagine like your grandparents running this little house that's also a hotel and you have to wear like little slippers and stuff. That's what a Ryukan is. <laughs> so we stayed in one of those in Tokyo. You're like in a metropolitan area with like skyscrapers in this little two story little house run by like a mom and pop. Yeah, it's really interesting to see like the combination between like the, the traditional stuff and the high tech in Tokyo because it's just... Mm-hmm mixed so well mm-hmm. i really want to stay at one of those next time i go uh, i didn't go last time they had like the slippers at the hostel but it was like kind of an optional thing and it was so many foreign people that it was barely japanese in there yeah yeah so i definitely will have to do that that's cool so was the first the first three weeks were in tokyo i'm guessing no we were actually in um where was that 
Hikone, which is oh, okay. on Lake Biwa, which is kind of like two hours west of Tokyo by train. Okay. Um, so it was like a, it was a town of like a couple hundred thousand people, but it was pretty rural. And so we kind of eased into Japanese culture that way. And then we went to cities on day trips and stuff. So we went to hmm. Osaka, Hiroshima, um, Nara, which is one of the old capitals. If you can make it there, it's a pretty cool place with, I mean, buildings from like 400, 500, 600 AD, huge temples and stuff. But So two hours west from Tokyo. I wonder if you were close to uh, Mount Mitake at all. That name doesn't sound familiar. We were a little bit north of Kyoto. Okay. Cool. Yeah, we went to Kyoto for three days. Did you end up going like around to see the temples in Kyoto at all? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's my biggest regret is we went there. For that purpose, we went and we rented bikes. But we were lazy and got up at like 11 a.m. that day. So by the time we got to the first temple, it was like 5.30 and they were closing it. Yeah, the coolest temple that we went to was they had this one that was built so that when you walked in the temple on the wood, it made noise, like on purpose. Oh, really? It purposely made noise so that if, I don't know, ninjas or assassins or something broke in and tried to, like, come get you, you could hear them come at night walking on this wood. Like, it was impossible to not. (laughs) It was like some crazy Japanese engineering from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. To purposely make the floor make noise and hey, it's I don't know, just rubber chickens underneath the beams. <laughs> <laughs> was that was that the one? I don't know if that was the one, but there is this one where it's like this golden house, like on this lake or or a pond or something. Have you seen that one? Yeah, we went we went to that one, and that one was set up so that well, a lot of those are set up so that you can pull up the stairs, basically. Like however you get from the first floor to the second floor, you could pull up so that if someone oh. comes in. Like, they can't get to you. Okay. Which, I mean, they could burn it down, I guess, but... But it's just harder and you can hide. There's more places to hide. More places to hide and shoot down at people, I guess. Play hide-and-seek in there if you're a kid. <laughs> cool. So, you went to Japan. You you did your independ- or you did your uh, study abroad. So, before we get into what you're doing now, you said you interned at... Or you worked at Boeing after college. So, I think a lot of people, you know, who are listening to this, if they're not into the whole entrepreneurship thing yet they're looking for a job so let's tell the story about how you got your job at Boeing and how that was you know how that affected you what that was like so I was pretty serious about my resume and getting a cushy job after college like that was my main focus I would say mm-hmm. so you know I, I did well in all my classes I took honors classes and things like that but the biggest thing I did was I knew every event that was happening at the career center within my business college when a company came to speak, I would go to it, I would listen to the recruiter, take advice from them, talk to them afterwards, and do whatever I could, basically, to know what they were looking for. So I would go to mock interviews when companies held them, which was a lot, and I would apply for jobs that you know, I probably wouldn't want, like the internship with that company, but I would do it just to practice interviewing and stuff. That's and a great I went strategy. To, I went to career fairs, like they happen like twice a year, and I would just pick a bunch of companies on the map, and I would just walk around with my resume and get more comfortable with doing that. And then, you know, like 30 minutes, an hour, and then I would go to the companies that I actually wanted to talk to after I was like not nervous anymore. So you're really like this 18, 19-year-old kid, and you're talking to these big companies, and, you know, it's it's nerve-wracking to do so. Mm-hmm. Especially you're wearing when you a want suit it. that 
you're wearing a suit coat that doesn't fit you. Like, <laughs> like that was me. Like I'm a lanky guy. Like nobody thinks to get it tailored. I got married. Yeah. <laughs> I still so, haven't gotten mine tailored yet. I really need to. It's like one of those to-do list items that I know will just never get done. But <laughs> yeah. And so you're walking around, you're talking to these companies that you're intimidated by. You're wearing clothes that don't fit you. You're shaking as you like hand them your resume. But as you just mm-hmm. keep doing it and keep doing it, you get better at it. So after my sophomore year, I had an internship with General Motors in Lansing. And so that helped me get my internship with Boeing and um, other internship offers and job offers and stuff like that. Just because of name recognition, I think. If you can get an internship with a bigger name company or even your first job out of college at a bigger name company that people have heard of, that's a respectable company, that that kind of opened doors, opens doors for you, I think. Mm-hmm. And so after my junior year, I had a choice between working at IBM or Boeing. And I went with Boeing because I wanted to be in Seattle and I didn't really want to be in Vermont. No okay. offense to anyone in Vermont, but I felt like Seattle was a good place to be. And so I went to work at Boeing, interned there, and then was kind of put in their system afterwards and got calls from managers when I was a senior in college to to go work there. Okay. So I'm guessing that was more your, your supply chain logistics side rather yeah, than your... Uh... My internship was supply chain. And then actually when I graduated, I ended up in a finance job. Um, so nothing even related to anything you were doing. No, not really. You know, this there's like this common theme. A lot of people end up doing that. You know, just when they get their job, they think it's going to be completely related to what they studied, and then, nope. College was to validate that you can learn and work hard in here. Now we'll just train you to do what we want you to do. <laughs> yeah, and that that's kind of what happened. Like I I kind of got pigeonholed into that job because right when I took it was May 2008, and like right then the economy mm. went really bad, and within like three or four months working at Boeing, they started to lay off people. They were, they were downsizing. And so having gone through that process, like within the first year of being out of college, I started to think, okay, maybe I should be my own boss. Maybe I should be in charge of my own, my own career. And in my finance job, I was in charge of employment at the company or at like the plant that I worked at. And so I had spreadsheets that every single number on that spreadsheet was a person and it, every single person on that had a family and mm-hmm. they were figuring out which groups within our branch were going to lay off people. And so I was in meetings with managers that were fighting for their people to not get layoff notices or have to transfer to a different part of the company. And so that was kind of an eye opening ex- experience for me because I always thought, Oh, I'll just get a cushy job. And even if I don't like it, I'll just leave work at work and, work for 40 years and be comfortable. And, mm-hmm. and that whole philosophy changed for me as I went through this, this layoff process and I survived the round of layoffs, but you know, I saw people at our company that just weren't there anymore. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because when, when people think about those who go into the entrepreneurial side of things, you know, a lot of them will be like, Oh, well your client could pull out the next week, you know, you you know you don't you don't have any certainty of your income you're at a risk at all times and reality is if you're an entrepreneur like you you're doing a great job because you have diversified your income between a lot of different sources that's actually a lot safer than just having a job because like you said things like that can happen without any you know without any of it being your fault 
all these factors are out of your control. And yet, like you said, you're, you're looking at spreadsheets of people that have to be let go at some point. Mm -hmm. And I think day to day, having a typical job or not being an entrepreneur is probably safer, Mm -hmm. but year to year, I don't think that it's safer because, you know, my, my wife's father is in his early sixties and he was raising or going up corporate ladder and stuff for 30 plus years. And then, you know, you get laid off. And if you're at a certain point, you know, executive wise or something like that, it's, it's near to impossible to find another job. Mm -hmm. And so you, you get so close to retirement and then you lose your job and then all your planning, all your numbers that you were calculating, Oh, I just need to work until this age. It's just, it all gets thrown away. Yep. My, one of my friends was telling me that there's going to come a time where like somebody else will have a decision that you don't control that's going to affect your life like in a huge way. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a situation like that, that's it's especially true. So I guess like I don't know if you agree with this. I you probably do. Um, if you're going to go into like the route where you get a job, just don't don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, try to learn a skill on the side at night or something. Like keep your mind active and interested, and don't just put everything into your job duties. That way, if something bad does happen, you've been doing all this cool stuff on the side that you can leverage into getting another job or starting your own thing. Because you just never know. Yeah, and that's what I that's what I was doing. Like I was getting into blogging. I had, was still doing web design stuff on the side. I was dabbling in doing game design and stuff with my friends. And <clears throat> you know, I, I just I, like as soon as I started thinking that way, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I started reading about entrepreneurship and okay, how do you actually make money with your own business and what kind of skills do you need and things like that. And I just started trying different things. Mm-hmm. But that didn't mean that I didn't keep working really hard at my day job. I I was still pushing really hard, getting promoted, getting um, different opportunities and accepting them and things like that. But it was like at night when I wasn't working on my MBA, I was, I was learning how to do stuff or, you know, and I was still relaxing and having fun too. But, you know, it was just my capacity to work was larger than my day job at that point. Right. And now you've morphed your job into your capacity to work, which is great. So now you're doing, you're doing blogging, you're doing filmmaking and video editing. Um, you're working for Corbett. So I'm guessing there's a lot of different aspects in there. Mm-hmm. You've built all these different skills I mean, these just separate skill sets, which are really cool. So let's, let's uh, transition from, you know, the, the job aspect to, to when you kind of branched off for yourself was it starting the blog on your own and trying to make money on your own first or did you hook up with corbett first i mean how did that relationship develop i started my own blog and then i actually took a course of his that kind was of that a sort of blog that matters no it was actually traffic school this was back in 2011 oh, okay <clears throat> and through that i kind of proved how dedicated i was to making this all work and I could also showcase my skills and abilities and stuff like that. And then about eight or nine months into having my own blog and, you know, trying to make it work and finding my voice and things like that. He opened up a part-time position with him because he was going to do some travel in Europe and wanted someone to oversee his sites and things like that. So that's when I applied for that and was accepted to do that. And then immediately after those six weeks were up, I started working full-time. And this was right after I got married and um, 
and that's when I left my job at Boeing and my wife and I traveled for a bit while I worked for Corbett and then we settled in San Diego. Okay. So that's actually interesting. I think you are the first person I've interviewed who is still currently an employee, but it's in a capacity that's, I mean, you're almost like a co-founder at this point. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing, are you, are you considered a co-founder in Fizzle or is still an employee of Corbett working on Fizzle? Yeah, for Fizzle, we call the three of us all co-founders because we all worked on it together to make it. Um, And then, you know, I always say I work with Corbett instead of for Corbett. I don't know if that's like the... It seems apt. You know, because he's definitely my boss and stuff, but he, he treats me like... Like a partner, yeah, and it shows. It shows on the site. I mean, on Think Traffic, you can tell it's like it's Corbett's site, but it shows you don't seem like an employee of the site. You seem like kind of the partner that's helping him run it. And I think that's what's different about having a team that's smaller. Mm -hmm. And when you're working at a startup and stuff, like if you really enjoy what you're doing and you're really well vested in it and seeing it be successful and things like that, then I think you're treated that way. Whereas Mm -hmm. when you work at a bigger company and you're just a cog or a number or you're less you're less like involved in big decisions and stuff like that it's less involved in being like creative and just doing the work that you're assigned then it feels less like you're in it right it just feels like you're just there to clock your hours so what are your tips for the student who's listening to this who thinks you know i want to get a job at a really small organization, you're just one person running something. What are the differences between what you got to do for that and what you got to do to get a job at Boeing? So to get a job at a company like <clears throat> Boeing or a, a typical Fortune 500, a resume is really important and um, experience is really important. Mm-hmm. Maybe not like actually showing your experience, but like having worked for certain companies or having traveled or having competed in a competition and placed in something. Whereas if you want to work at a startup or a smaller company, you have to have skills and you have to have built something with those skills. And that can be pretty much anything depending on what kind of startup you want to work for. Um, like if it's if it's a tech startup or something, like learn app design, learn web design, learn, um, learn how to do copywriting or something if you want to work for a blogger or an author or something like that. You know, learn some skills that can then be used to build something. And if you need to, start doing free work for that company to prove yourself for a few months. Mm-hmm. And I would say, like, also just just be doing something before you even approach them. Like, you were already blogging before you hooked up with Corbett. And, I mean, the mm-hmm. way you did was because you were interested in learning how to make a better blog. You weren't looking for a job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not like you were just... You can go out and you can look for a job, you know, it's fine. But for you, you were also, you had something going on actively on the side that he could look at and be like, okay, that's awesome. He was doing that already. So I know he's going to be a great candidate for the things I need him to do. Yeah. And he listed out like all the types of things you need to be able to do. And those were all the things that I was doing because I was running my own site and things Mm -hmm. like that. Cool. So let's talk about your site. So what is Pocket Changed and what do you aim to help people to do with that? So I originally started it as a personal finance blog because that's how I got into blogging originally was reading personal finance blogs after college and just like learning what to do with this money that I had and I didn't want to just waste it all. Yeah. And so I started reading like Get Rich Slowly and Simple Dollar and 
I will teach you to be rich. And so that's what I started blogging about. And that's what I think a lot of people do when they start blogging is they start blogging about the thing that they are interested in or the people that they read. And after about six to nine months of talking about personal finance, I was more interested in entrepreneurship. And so I just started talking about that. Eventually started a podcast where I was interviewing um, online entrepreneurs. And so my main goal with that is just to show people that there are other ways to live. There are, there are ways to be happier with less money as long as you know how to manage it. And there are ways to be happier by working for yourself and potentially earning even more money than you would. And to be safer and more in control of your future than, like you said, having someone else make a decision that mm-hmm. impacts your life. Cool. And the cool thing about having a blog is all the the old focuses you used to have are still relevant. So I'm a subscriber to your email list and you've been sending out like these, I think they're automated emails. They come like every Mm -hmm. week, but it's like a, it's a new personal finance topic. And I think that's really useful for a college student or someone who's just getting out of school to have something like that every week to like say, okay, here's a new topic, you know, check this out. This is going to be really helpful to your your personal finance knowledge. Yeah. And there's definitely the thing is like personal finance or entrepreneurship. It's like, it's intimidating because there's so many different topics. And so <clears throat> with those, I just try to bring them up and make you think of them. Like as opposed to like giving you tips or something like that, like, okay, let's just talk about, let's just talk about debt today. Like what, what really is, what really is debt? And do you want to get out of debt quickly or are you okay with it? Like it just, it makes you start thinking about it as opposed to just seeing the number and stressing out and closing the window and, you know, trying not to think about it. It's just slowly like getting comfortable with the idea of like being in control of your money. Mm -hmm. That's, that's something that everyone needs to, needs to do. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's not a sexy thing to talk about. No, it's not. But it's it's an important thing because the whether or not you have debt affects your freedom to do as you want. And that's like the big thing that – it's like the really, really big idea that I want to get out to students is like your debt isn't just something to not think about and just think, oh, I can, I can get a job and do it. Because if you get out of school and the job that you wanted to do doesn't turn out to pay as much as you thought, you might be forced to go take something else you don't want to do. Because you've got $600 a month you have to pay to sell him May. Mm-hmm. And when I was in college, that was my approach. It was, <clears throat> excuse me, it was, you know, I'm just going to pay off all this debt later. Mm-hmm. And I, I worked in the summers and that was basically to pay off like the cash piece that I owed to the college. But both my mom and I took loans throughout college and I, you know, I knew I was taking three, four or 5000 a year. And so when I got done, I had about seventeen or eighteen thousand dollars, <throat> and then right away I also bought a car. Mm. I bought a used car for like ten grand because mine died like the day before I was supposed to drive to Seattle. And so I was looking at you know twenty eight thousand dollars in debt, and I had like five hundred dollars in my bank account when I graduated college. And luckily I didn't have credit card debt. That was something I was like completely against when I was in college was building up credit card debt because I saw friends that were doing that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, $20,000, I like my first week that I was sitting at Boeing, I, you know, it's pretty slow when you first start, you're like watching training videos on yeah, it is. the internet <laughs> and stuff. 
And like during lunch one day, I was like, okay, how long would it take me to pay this thing off if I set aside, I don't know, $500 a paycheck? Like when you start your job, like one of the biggest recommendations I have for people is to not upgrade your lifestyle at all. So get, go right there. Yeah. Get an in, <laughs> inexpensive apartment, you know, Craigslist furniture or hand-me-down furniture and plates and stuff like that and and get out of debt while you can. And I set aside, I don't know, I was setting aside like 15 or 20% for retirement and another like 20% just to go towards debt. And I just lived like that for like a few years and I I paid off the 20,000 in a few years and and that is what like gave me that freedom to then go and be an entrepreneur and and yes like my wife and I have debt again now because she has student loans, but mine are mine are gone, and I'm I'm not paying interest on them or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So now you can focus on getting those ones done, and and in the meantime, you basically have the freedom to do what you want. And I think it was just a good lesson to instill in myself that I didn't need to just keep up with the Joneses and you know get mm-hmm. a nice car and to buy a house right away and things like that. Well, it's nice to have those things, like people are really tied to their debt. And and a book that I would recommend to people read is called Millionaire Next Door where they talk about how the people that are actually, you know, rich, I'm using air quotes here. Yeah. don't look like they're rich and the people that look like they're rich typically aren't rich. Mm-hmm. Because the people that do have a lot of money live a lifestyle that's subdued and they don't have the big fancy house and five cars and stuff they they drove the same car into the ground basically but they have money for retirement and money for their kids to then go to college and not have to take loans and exactly so that's an interesting book and a different perspective on being quote rich and it's funny because you know i hear all these stories once once you get all this more you know this cool stuff if you upgrade your life you're not actually any happier there's like this quote that Probably Abraham Lincoln didn't say it, but everyone says he said it. Like most people are as happy as they choose to be. I don't know if Lincoln actually said that because he had like depression problems and stuff. But <laughs> it's like it makes sense anyway. I mean, whether or not a really famous person said it, you're you're pretty. If you're in college right now and you're a happy person, you know you're enjoying your lifestyle. You're probably not going to be incredibly happy or on a day to day basis going forward if you go buy a big house and a new car just because it looks cool. Mm-hmm. You're probably yeah. just going to be about the same amount you were, you know, unless you're in debt because the money situation is what brings the happiness level down. Yeah, and I have this quote on my about page right now that, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to share it. It's oh, yeah. by Tal Ben Shahar, who is, he's someone that studies happiness, which is a kind of an interesting job to have. Um, but he says, money beyond the bare minimum necessity for food and shelter is nothing more than a means to an end. Yet so often we confuse means with ends and sacrifice happiness, which is the end, for the means, which is money. So people think that they need money to be happy as opposed to figuring out how to be happy and having money be like something that's completely separate. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, focus on having enough that your life is secure and that you're you know planning for your future and beyond that there's other things you can do to be happy than just trying to make more and and buying all the stuff you think you need to have to be successful or or 
you know have an opulent lifestyle or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. And that's not to say that I don't that I don't buy things or that I'm a minimalist with like 50 things and I mm-hmm. live in a backpack and stuff. Like you got a bookshelf right back there. Yeah, I mean, I have. <laughs> I got mine too. So <laughs> those those books behind me. There's there's my fifty things. Like I, I lose yeah. already. So, <laughs> um, and I'm super into tech and like games and stuff. So I have a ton of Apple products. I have video mm-hmm. game systems. I, but, but you get utility out of all those things. But I but I use them. Like, yeah, my Apple products are all like business investments. It's the gear that I use to to run my business. We have. You know, we have cameras and lenses that we spent probably five figures on last year to invest in our photography and videography, but we use those every day. They're they're tools. They're not mm-hmm. they're not just items for consumption. It's, it's totally way. yeah, totally worth it when you're investing. That's why my girlfriend would be like, "Why'd you buy six books in one day?" I'm like, "Well, if I read all those, I'm going to know things, and that's an investment, both my education and what I can create. So it's like mm-hmm. a business investment as well." So I mean, as long as as long as what you're buying is something that you can use, that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you're buying it simply as a status symbol, like I have friends who are like, oh, I want to get a five thousand dollar watch, and I'm like, why? Well, because because they look cool, or because you know that's that's what all the successful people get. You know, why? Like that's not going to mm-hmm. do anything for you. And I yeah, that's and just that's, my opinion. But, yeah, and <laughs> I've always kind of had that same philosophy. I think that I was um, when I was paying off my debt and things like that. I went beyond frugal and I went to cheap. Mm-hmm. So I was just buying the most inexpensive thing all the time. But my wife helped me with this to move back to just being frugal and to getting things that last and things of quality. And um, I think that that's a really important distinction. It is like a whole different conversation of what the difference between being frugal and cheap are. Cheap are. But, you know, that was something that I had to learn as I went on my personal finance journey from Okay, I'm not going to spend any money on anything, mm-hmm. and I'm going to eat DiGiorno's and mac and cheese <laughs> like every night. And it's like, no, that's not like a good strategy for, for like being healthy and stuff. Did you hear about uh, Brian McBride? Uh-uh. On uh, CNN Money, he there's this guy Brian McBride. He he works for CNN now, but he talks about how he paid off twenty six thousand dollars in debt in two years, and like like you said, he just went to like ultra cheap level. Like he would scrape mold off of his bread. So he could eat the good parts and like, yeah. And I, w- I want to get him on the podcast because he's got an interesting story of like, he really, really just scraped by to pay off this debt. But like you said, after a while, you have to like think about what your priorities are. Yeah. I mean, and when you're in debt, that's like the priority. Like I want out of this. But but I, I honestly <laughs> ate peanut butter and jelly for like two years. Yeah. Like that was my lunch. I had like peanut butter and jelly and some crackers and some fruit mm-hmm. just because I didn't. I didn't go like eat out with people. I didn't, you know, everybody talks about lattes. I didn't drink coffee. Like, and that's just what I had to do to get out of debt. (laughs) (laughs) I've been been drinking coffee about two months before that. I never drank it at all. I got a, I got like one of those Keurig things because they have like good chai lattes. Mm -hmm. And then like it came with sample coffee. So I tried that and that was a horrible idea. And I just keep drinking it. (laughs) Oh, well. It's better than energy drinks, I'll give it that. So Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's cool. Okay, so let's let's talk about you, you paid off your debt. Uh you built a pretty successful blog. You started working for Corbett. And then the other side is your videography business, which I didn't even know about until uh I was watching the trailer for Pat Flynn's Let Go book. And 
I think like you were mentioned in there at the end or, or something, some sort of association was made. And I was like, Caleb made that video. That's, that's so cool. So how'd you get into that? Um, you know, building that into your business, you know, like video and film is always something I've been really interested in. Um, when I caddied in high school, I would like, I would just get cash and I would just take the cash directly from the golf course to like Walmart or something. And I would buy movies and video games. And so I, I always loved film and I loved film projects whenever I did them in high school or college. And it didn't really hit me until we started having all this camera gear for my wife, how much I actually liked filmmaking. And I started started studying it. And there's so many resources online of people um, that talk about the tactical piece, the storytelling piece, lighting, audio, everything. And so I just started learning about it just for fun. And then... I just did it on the side a bit. I found some clients through my wife and through weddings and stuff that I go and shoot and and just being friends with Pat through work online and living in San Diego. He's like, hey, I'm working on a book and in the book there are going to be videos and he just needed someone to help him with it. And so I said, yeah, Boom, totally. networking. <laughs> yeah, and really, really that's what it is. It's It's networking and knowing people and then having them know like what you know how to do because you did it for yourself first. Exactly. That's like, that's like the whole message behind personal branding is finding a way for people to know what you do so they can connect you with work, you know, or, or or what have you. Yeah. Cause you like, don't have to pitch yourself. It's funny because I was, I was at like a networking event and I was, I was doing some video for it and, Someone's like, do you have a business card? And they're like, how do you get work without a business card? And it's like, I just know people. Mm-hmm. You know, I have business cards for when I go to conferences for blogging and stuff like that. But I don't have a like a business card for me to do video and stuff. It's like, just know the person. Yeah. Like, I'm not interested in w- walking around the room and having five-second conversations with people. Mm-hmm. Like, I exactly. want to find one person and talk with them for, like, 15 minutes to 30 minutes or something. Yeah, I mean, if And you then you don't need seconds. a business card. Like, I don't have exactly. your business card. They're gonna remember you if you're if you're the five second interaction that hands a business card, then what you have to make an impression is how pretty your card is, how pretty your website is if they decide to go to it, which mm-hmm. they probably won't, and then the five seconds, you know, which is is not enough time to build a relationship or make an impression, you know, mm-hmm. it's just not. So I, that's why I don't like. I didn't like going to career fairs. Once I decided I didn't want to work in a big company, I I haven't been to a career fair since sophomore year. And, you know, it's not because I don't care about my professional life. It's that that's not the best use of my time. If I'm if I'm building relationships with people outside of a career fair where it can be more substantial, I can invest more time in it, it's going to open up better opportunities. That's just the plain and simple truth of it, I think. Yeah, and if you're at something like that or a, quote, networking event or a conference or something like that, <clears throat> the best thing you can do is find the people that you know and ask them who you should meet. Mm-hmm. If you could, if you only say all weekend, who should I meet to people, you'll meet way more people than if you just randomly walk up and force yourself to awkwardly introduce yourself to someone. And because you then, have that like mutual friend. Yeah. yeah. So they're like, oh, well, this guy knows. You know, my friend knows this guy's legit. So mm-hmm. automatically, you know, most people are nice and they're going to talk to you and be, you know, be friendly right away. But if they have a friend who's vouched for you already... Like immediately, there's just like this this wall that comes down. Like, oh, you're friends with him. That's cool. You, you know, I know you're probably into something that I'm going to be into as well. And the same thing happens online. Just 
through email. If you know someone that knows that person, it's much better for them to introduce you and just CC both of you on an email than just cold email. Mm-hmm. Very true. Okay, so we're at the 45-minute mark. Um, going to start wrapping up soon, but one thing I want to talk about is Lucky Breaks. So when I was when I was starting to blog, you know, like no visits a day, my mom and mm-hmm. my, my mom's cat were the ones reading my blog. I would read stuff like, you know, Pro Blogger and Michael Dunlop back in the day. I think he was still relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, like, how are these guys making money? You know, how, how do they have – actually, I wasn't even cared about the money. I was cared about the, the traffic and the audiences. How do you get so many so many readers? And I think, okay, so their stories are not realistic because they have some unfair advantage – Mm-hmm. That, you know, I don't have and I can't get to where they are because I don't have that. But it's cool. Like Pat Flynn wrote about that unfair advantage, that that concept of like everyone mm-hmm. has some like lucky break or some unfair advantage that's unique to them and helps them get to where they are. So like, did you have anything that stands out to you as like a really big event in your life? Like with Pat, it was going to the restaurant and meeting the the owner who hooked him up with his architecture job. Mm-hmm. Was there anything like that in your life? Um, I think getting connected to Corbett was probably that for me. Okay. Um, having, you know, on a, on a whim almost signed up for his course only two months into blogging. I mean, it was a multi-hundred-dollar course, and I committed to it and gave it a ton of effort. And then I think going to World Domination Summit was really good for me, too, because making a lot of connections there helped my work online. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was where I actually met Corbett the first time. And that was, you know, right before he opened the position so he could interact with me and we hung out a little bit. So I, I would say that that's my lucky break because I don't know. I don't know where I would be online if I wasn't, you know, working alongside him. Right. Are you are you going back to WDS this year? Yeah. I mean, I was there last year going back again this year. Cool. Um, I saw what, what are the dates for that? You know, I think it's like July fifth to seventh okay because i saw somebody was tweeting they had a ticket open for free or not for free that they're getting up their ticket and depending on the dates i might think about going this year yeah i would highly recommend it it's it's going to be bigger this year but it's just the people that are there are really cool people and i don't know i i feel like i'm just looking at twitter when i'm there because everyone i follow is like pretty much there (laughs) like when i'm walking around so yeah that's i'm i'm kind of expecting that as well my uh, my following list has changed a little bit in the past few weeks because I randomly got an interest in science, so I'm like following all these science bloggers now. But mm-hmm. other than that, it's like all the WDS crowd, the bloggers and mm-hmm. online business people. So I think it'd be a really cool experience. But it's really interesting, like that. You know, that lucky break is just. I think everyone has like a moment like that, where you're not on the typical path. You're not like, it wasn't at a career fair. It wasn't at a networking event. It wasn't at a job or an internship or, you know, in a class, it, you signed up for a random course online and you worked your butt off of that. And that's what opened up the, the, the door for you. Mm-hmm. For me, it was, uh, the way I got my internship, I was absentmindedly browsing Twitter in class cause I was bored and I saw a tweet about a conference to go to. And that was like the, the kicker for the whole thing for me, you know, all these like weird little events that are unique to you and nobody else has them that they, they work out and like your story is built off, you know, these tiny events instead of, you know, all the mundane in-between day-to-day things. Yeah, and even, like, my, let's see, like, my job with Boeing pretty much happened because I went to one of the networking events, and then I ended up getting 
connected with the recruiter and like she was hosting a dinner and only like two or three people showed up. So I got tons of FaceTime with the recruiter. She knew who I was. So when they came back to do interview, I like went right to the top of the pile and I was able to get an interview and all that kind of stuff. So like, I don't think, I don't think lucky breaks happen without hard work. And Mm -hmm. I think that they're only lucky breaks when you look at them retrospectively, you don't, you don't know what that's going to be. Yeah. So if you want to have an unfair advantage that all the successful people had, whatever it is, you know, however many unique it may be, you still have to put in the work, you know, Mm -hmm. you still have to go after whatever it is, you know, set your goals and just work at them. And there's going to be a lot of time where you have no traffic or you're, you're still looking for a job. You know, there's, there's those, those moments that people don't see you working through, but they're in your past. Exactly. Cool. Well, this has been an awesome conversation, Caleb. And I got to get out to California to meet you pretty soon. Before we wrap up, um, so you got a bookshelf behind there. So I'm a really big reader as well. What's one book you'd recommend that students read? Oh, man. Uh, let me turn around <laughs> here for a second. You got to stare at it. And a lot of books that I read are on Kindle or digital. So this is probably not a fair representation, but I'll. I'll oh, yeah. Same here. I like just started buying real books a couple weeks ago. Let's see. I can't just give one, so I'll give a few. Um, for like getting in the entrepreneurship mindset, um, a book that has a really cheesy title, but I recommend to people is Millionaire Fastlane by MJ DeMarco. And he talks about th- three different things. He talks about like the sidewalk, the slow lane, and the fast lane. The sidewalk is people that you know live paycheck to paycheck and don't ever get out of that cycle in their life. And the slow lane is going to work for a company and you know working there for 40 years and slowly saving a percentage and then the fast lane is entrepreneurship and stuff like that so it kind of walks through why like financially and big picture why being an entrepreneur is um is the preferred route to to attempt um another book that i highly recommend is book yourself solid if you're going to ever do any freelancing or you want to do consulting or like let's say you wanted to just do some work on the side when you're in college, that book walks through the best way to kind of set up that practice and how how to find the best clients and how to wow them and how to get referrals and all that kind of stuff. So Book Yourself Solid is definitely a good book. Um, and beyond that, I mean, if you search if you search Essential Cubicle Renegade Library on Google, mm-hmm. I have a post that lists out my 20 top books for people that want to be entrepreneurs. Oh, cool. And I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes for this, this uh, episode. Yeah. And both of those books are on that list. Okay. Um, what about for like personal finance? So for me, like, uh, Zach Pissonette's books debt for you was like huge, huge, um, influence on my content. And then his newest one is, I think it's like how to be better looking, better, richer, and more successful than your parents. And it's about the, uh, the personal finance aspect after you graduate. And I haven't mm-hmm. read that one yet, but I'm really excited too. So those will be my recommendations for personal finance. But since you started out as a personal finance blogger, what would you recommend? Um, the first one I'd recommend is a book called Your Money or Your Life um, that walks through kind of trading trading your time for money and what that means. And um, just that was a good like philosophical book for me to read starting out. It's not super technical, but... Um, you'll learn a decent amount for like personal finance types tips and stuff. I will teach you to be rich by Ramit Sethi is a good book. 
um, with a lot of the technical things like credit cards and things like that. Let's see what else. Uh, if you want to get into investing type stuff, I would read anything that's titled Boggleheads. Okay. There's Boggleheads Guide to Investing um, and Boggleheads Guide to Retirement Planning in it. It gets pretty technical, but he's one of like the four founders of like smart investing advice in the past 50 years or so. Let's see what else do I recommend. Um, Millionaire Next Door is good for getting in the mindset of not living above your lifestyle. That's another good book. I think that probably covers most of the, the first ones I would recommend to people. Cool. And then I... For all those listening, I would recommend to uh, sign up for Caleb's newsletter at pocketchanged.com uh, with the D on the end, pocketchanged. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just have the, the autoresponder series where you just kind of cover a new finance topic every week. And, you know, that's that's been really useful just to read over every week. I mean, for me, it's since I read those books as well, it's it's like review, but very useful stuff. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for the recommendations and, you know, thanks for the awesome conversation. This is, this has been an awesome story to go through and a lot of insights to hear. Um, if people want to connect with you or, you know, read more of your content, where should they go? Um, the qu- quickest way to find me is probably to go to calebwajic.com, C-A-L-E-B-W-O-J-C-I-K.com or follow me on Twitter. It's just at calebwajic. Awesome. Well, thanks so much and have a great day, dude. Thanks, you too. All right. Hopefully after that interview, you have learned a little bit more about gaining a diverse and useful skill set. Um, Caleb's skill set has really inspired me, so hopefully you got some insight out of this interview as well. Once again, collegeinfogeek.com slash cast is where you can get the show notes for this episode. Just click on the episode 9 link. And if you liked this episode, if you would like the episodes that have come before it, I would love it if you'd go on iTunes, search for the College Info Geek podcast, or just go on this episode listing and click on the iTunes link and leave a review. It really helps the podcast out. All right. Well, peace out and have an awesome day. Thanks for listening to the College Info Geek podcast. Grow your brain even more at www.collegeinfogeek.com.